Welcome to episode 11 of The Upper 90. I'm Sam Culp. Glad to be back talking all things Premier League here with you on the WMUC Sports Network of Podcasts. Got another great episode for you this week. I'll be discussing the end of the January transfer window. I'll also give my thoughts on some big wins around the league, including Man United's thumping of Southampton and Chelsea's London Derby triumph over Spurs. But there's really only one place to start, and that is with the transfer window. I've been talking about it for the last couple weeks. Not a whole lot of spending from uh, clubs around the league. Um, but as we saw on deadline day, there were some there were some minor moves to be made. Um, but again, money really wasn't flowing. A lot of teams saving up for what's primed to be a huge window in uh, in over the summer in June. Um, but let's talk a little bit about some of the deadline day moves because. I, there, there were some big ones. The biggest uh, to me was Liverpool's signing of Ben Davis from Preston, the center back who's played really well, right? Who's playing really well, well right now, excuse me, in the championship. He's going to move up a level into the Premier League for the first time in his career. Um, it's, it's a move that normally you wouldn't see a team like Liverpool made the def- make the defending champions, of course, but they need defensive help right now. They've lost. Uh, Joe Gomez, Virgil van Dijk, Trent Alexander-Arnold has missed some time, and, and so now they're adding Ben Davis to give uh, to, pro- to provide some depth that they could desperately use. Um, they also signed a uh, on loan from Schalke Ozenkabak. Um, he's going to come into Liverpool for the rest of the season, again, providing some depth for a Liverpool squad that has really struggled to, uh, to stay fit throughout the year, and uh, they, they also, I forgot to mention, um, they another injury on that Liverpool back line, Joel Matip is going to miss the rest of the season with, ankle, with an ankle injury, so he was one of their best bench pieces, and now he's also out, um, so Liverpool adding some depth to their squad. Some other loan moves from around the league, Arsenal shipped out their young midfielder Ainsley Maitland-Niles to West Brom for the rest of the season on loan. Uh, Maitland Isles really wasn't getting a whole lot of time in the squad, and he's a good young player that will certainly uh, develop in that West Brom system. Fulham signed Bordeaux striker Josh Maha on loan. He'll probably be uh, one of their top strikers for the rest of the season. Fulham have been one of the worst attacking sides in the league. They bring in a young guy who's produced in the in League One. Uh, and will pre- and will probably provide a spark for them uh, on the attack. Um, and then one of the more confusing moves from deadline day um, took some people by surprise was uh, Liverpool loaning out Takumi Minamino uh, to Southampton. Uh, he's Minamino has been one of Liverpool's um, emerging players over the course of the season. Has provided some really uh, some really nice moments off of the bench. He's not really a goal scorer as much of a creator. He plays on the wings. Uh, can also go down the middle if needed. Um, but you know, I think it did take me by surprise a little because, as I just said, Liverpool are looking for depth. They need depth uh, if they want to make catch up to Man City this season and even fight for. Their, they're fighting right now for the top four spot. Uh, because of all the injuries they've suffered. So Minamino getting loaned out, it, it was a bit of a surprise. He's not exactly a young player either. Um, he, I believe he's 26. Yeah, 26 years old. So uh, confusing move to me, but I guess Liverpool are trying to balance their books a little and uh, uh, 
you know, they, they, they have players on the attack who can make up for Minamino's loss, obviously. Firmino, Salah, Mane, I mean, they're the best in the league. Uh, so I guess maybe Jurgen Klopp was thinking he, he wasn't needed for the rest of the season. And meanwhile, Southampton get another piece as they try to regain their form. They lost 9 nothing to Man United over the week. I'll be getting into that match a little bit later. Those were pretty much the major moves from deadline day. There really just wasn't a whole lot of action. Um, it seems like the focus right now across the Premier League is is on the pitch, and clubs aren't spending a lot of money, which I think is wise considering you know, COVID, obviously. Um, but it's so compact right now in the Premier League. Several of the clubs that we think of um, as, I'm going to put this in quotes, small clubs, the Brightons, the Fulhams, even Sheffield, um, they've gotten some big wins this season without huge money signings, which is, uh, let's be honest, it's rare to see that. It's rare to see Burnley and Brighton beat Liverpool at home, by the way, um, in back-to-back matches. So it's it, to me, it's a good sign. It means competitiveness in the Premier League isn't going to be defined by how much money a club spends this season, which is always good because it gets it gets boring seeing the same teams, normally the wealthier teams, win every season. Once again, at the forefront of the Premier League news is Manchester United. They got one of the biggest wins in their club's history on Tuesday, beating Southampton 9-0 Southampton. We're down to 10 men pretty much from the start of the game. They actually, by the end, were down to nine. Um, and, and Man United took full advantage. They put up nine goals. Nine. Yeah, it's, it's real impressive from them. Uh, only one penalty. That's important to note. Bruno Fernandes is known for uh, drawing a ton of penalties, but only one in this game. So it was really uh, it was an incredible offensive performance by Man United. Uh, just about... Um, Every guy that you'd expect to, to get on the score sheet did. Martial scored two. That's going to be huge for his confidence. He'd struggled up to, up until this point in the Premier League. Um, as I said, Fernandez got a goal. McTominay, too. Juan Basaka even scored the opener, which is a surprise. He doesn't press forward a whole lot. But once Southampton went down to 10 men, Ole stayed really aggressive um, and didn't let up, as is clear by the scoreline. Um you know, this is a, a big win for Man United, obviously. It keeps them in the title race for now. They're just three points behind Man City, although Man City do have a game in hand on their rivals. There are really two ways you can look at this match in terms of Man United's long-term outlook. On one hand, it is a huge bounce-back win for a club that looked to possibly be going in the wrong direction after what's already been a really topsy-turvy season for the Red Devils. They they lost to Sheffield United 2-1. They come back and play, I wouldn't say a great match, but a decent one against Arsenal. They draw 0-0. And coming into the Southampton game, you, you, you know, my thought was this is a, a perfect trap game for Man United because they have Everton tomorrow. They could be looking ahead to the Everton matchup and overlooking Southampton who is a good side and has gotten some quality wins this season. But they did the exact opposite, and they were obviously helped out by a really silly red card from Jankowitz in the second minute. And that kind of propelled them to to the huge victory. Um, and I, I look at this match, and I, I say it's all about confidence with this squad. If, if you know, even without Paul Pogba, if Daniel James and Martial and these young guys can stay confident and 
earn their spot on the pitch, then Man United have a real shot uh, to to finish top two and contend City for the title. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, you can be a little more skeptical about this big win. It was against Southampton, 10 men. Uh, they didn't, I mean, they <laughs> you can't look bad uh, when, you, when you win 9-0, but I wouldn't say this absolves Man United of all the problems that we've seen throughout the season. They still have to prove it against the biggest sides. They still they have to beat Everton tomorrow to to stay in the hunt. That's going to be a tough match, um, and you know even with a, a huge victory like this and what is seemingly a really solid Man United squad, how much do you, do you trust Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? How much do you trust him? He can't do it in Europe. He hasn't been able to reach a final as manager. Still hasn't fully proven that he's one of the best uh, gaffers in the Premier League. So am I, am I really to trust him in bringing this team to the top? I don't know. You definitely can. There are signs there that, that he's improving as a manager tactically. I think he's been so much better. His lineups have been good, even though Van de Bijk still hasn't gotten into the squad, barely cracked it at all, which is surprising. But I'm sure there are reasons there that, you know, I, I trust Ole enough to, uh, to, to make the right lineup decisions. And so far he, he has. I think he's been uh, really successful in that department. But it's just... The overall results in it, it reminds me a lot of Mikel Arteta when he was struggling and, you know, when there was the debate going on, should we give him time, should we not? And Ole's not going to get sacked, but I think the parallels are there with Arteta. He, he, had, he had reached an FA Cup final, which is, and, and won, of course, which is a, a great resume booster, but he hadn't done anything in the Premier League. And even though he might be a great manager and the players all love him and stuff, you're... you're what defines you as a manager is how you do in the league. And so far, Ole hasn't, to me, shown enough to deserve any confidence from a neutral perspective. Um, it seems like Man United fans are kind of split. Some still are on the fence about Ole, but, you know, there's certainly reason to trust him, and I understand why. So I really see it from both perspectives. Um, and nonetheless, it's a huge three points for Man United. They, but they need a win against Everton um, tomorrow that matches at 3 p.m. Everton have struggled lately. They lost to Newcastle last Saturday 2-0. They came back and, and beat Leeds in the midweek, but um, you know they they have a they have their hands full with Man United, and it's a it's a match where the Red Devils can take advantage of Everton. The back their back line has been shaky. You know when you give up two goals to Newcastle, that's definitely a sign that something's wrong there, and maybe Carlo Ancelotti can figure it out for this matchup, but I like Man United to get the three points and stay firmly in the title race. Right now, it's all about stringing these good victories together for Man United. One bad result, and it's back to square one in terms of their title contention chances. Moving on now to Chelsea. Finally, the Blues get a big victory. (laughs) Blues fans like myself have been waiting for one for a long time now. And they get it done against a big six club for the first time in a while. They beat Spurs one nil on a penalty, and it 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 was it was close, but all in all, it's a great victory for Thomas Tuchel, and um, for Chelsea as a whole, they really needed this one. Um, I wasn't last time I recorded Chelsea hadn't won a match under Tuchel. They did get a victory against Burnley last weekend, two nil. So coming into this match, I think. Uh, I think there was definitely an air of confidence around the club. 
that things were going to turn around, and they did. You know, even even though it was just one nil, uh, you have to be happy with what you saw from the Blues. They were incre- they were aggressive on the attack, which is what we saw against Burnley. They didn't uh, they didn't let up throughout the entire match, even. When Tottenham were starting to creep back into it in the second half, they still had goal-scoring opportunities. And quite frankly, it should have been more than just 1-0. Looking at it tactically, you can clearly see the difference between Frank Lampard and Thomas Tuchel, not just in uh, in their baseline formation, but also in the way that they, that they run the club and they run the squad uh, during matches, I talked about it on last week's podcast. I see Tuchel in many ways as the as the anti Lampard in a lot of ways. Um, one thing that I love to see about Tuchel is how animated he gets on the touchline. Uh, we didn't we didn't see that from Lampard, and I feel like you know it, it's not that big of a deal, but you could see that Tuchel has has a system already has a system in place that he wants his players to follow, and that he's he's incredibly passionate about the squad, um, and I don't know, that was just a, a breath of fresh air in a lot of ways. But getting back to his tactics, um, the biggest difference between Lampard and Tuchel is how much Chelsea are playing through the middle now compared to what they were doing under Lampard. Against Tottenham, pretty much every all of their attack was funneled through the middle, funneled through Mateo Kovacic and Jorginho and, and Chelsea's midfielders, which uh, you know have been their, are the strength of their squad. Um, and even though Mason Mount didn't have his best performance, Kovacic was able to pick it up. And, uh, you know, there were some great runs from the back line up to the front, uh, up, up to the attacking third by, by uh, Kovacic and Jorginho, the two best players in the match, in my mind. Um, and they really helped Ch- uh, Chelsea's offense in a lot of ways. Again, they weren't great in the final third. You have to, they have to be better, and I'm sure Tuchel will work on that. But just the scheme, the fit, it it it, it fits this squad really nicely. The way Tuchel runs his offense, um, the the high velocity, high uh, attacking focus mindset. Will it work against every club? No. And I was a little worried in the second half that they would be caught on the counterattack because uh, Spurs do have um, do have a tendency to to bite teams like that. But that never happened, and even after Thiago Silva went down with an injury, hoping he's okay, the back line stayed strong, the midfield was impressive, and the front three, while they didn't finish their chances, there were certainly quite a few that were created, um, and that's always a good sign to see against uh, Tottenham, who um, throughout most of the season have had a really strong defense. Um, moving over to the Spurs side of things, it's a bad loss for for Tottenham for sure. It's the first time in Jose Mourinho's career that he's lost three straight home league matches. I mean, that's you know, all things aside, that's that's a really impressive stat. That this is the first time that's ever happened to Mourinho. But anyway, um, uh, Spurs are in trouble right now. They're in eighth place. They're behind Chelsea. They're behind Everton, uh, and right now they look they look out of it completely because they have no Harry Kane who is the facilitator of their offense. Their backline has played horrifically. Eric Dyer gives away uh, just I mean one of the silliest penalties I've ever seen. He's on the ground, Timo Werner is trying to collect the ball in the box and he just sticks out his leg and trips him. There's no reason to do that uh, when you're when you have the rest of your fellow defenders behind you. Um, and so he tripped Werner and it's a penalty. Jorginho converts and that's the only goal of the game that eventually gives Chelsea the win. 
just a really silly penalty and it 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 kind of speaks to the greater problem right now within Tottenham squad is that they're not consistent enough and this was the concern from the get from the beginning of the season when they got out to such a great start can they keep up the consistency and while they have some great players on their squad they're not they're not playing to their level on on to their expected level on a regular basis and you can see that in guys like Serge Aurier even Hoiberg who's known for his consistency wasn't great against Chelsea and then of course Eric Dyer who I just mentioned um, it, it's again it's it's looking bad for for Spurs right now there's not much more to say than that uh, the the Jose out crowd is rising up and I, I think that's premature I personally I regard Jose Mourinho very highly. I think he's a great manager, and I think he will get things right eventually. But there is this tendency for Mourinho teams to kind of fizzle out um, around this point in the season, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with Jose's system. It's high energy. You, you have to be on point all the time, and it's quite possible that this Tottenham squad is just done. Um, that That's really my best explanation for it right now. You hear stories of Serge Aurier storming out of the locker room after getting subbed off at halftime a couple matches ago. Um, there are some rumors coming out that that uh, you know certain players are disinterested and, and not engaged with what Mourinho is preaching on the pitch. And um, obviously that is a major concern. Going forward, they, they, Mourinho has to get things right in the locker room first of all and then worry about what's going on on the pitch. Tottenham's next match is against West Brom. That should be a get-right game for them. I mean, all things considered, they're still a better team than West Brom, but, you know, they can't sit back. I don't think Mourinho can afford to park the bus right now. He just can't, and I know that's his system, but it's not working, obviously, and they need to score goals, and they can't, they against a, a side like West Brom, if they go up 1-0, they can't sit back. They can't because they've got to get a second and maybe a third because you just never know this season in the Premier League. And West Brom, just like, just like pretty much every, any other club in the Prem this season, has gotten some surprising results. They beat Wolves not too long ago, 3-2. Uh, uh, they, they, they drew with Liverpool earlier in the season. I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't a side that is just going to roll over and beat you, and especially with Sam Allardyce there. Um, you know he's going to want to to get a big win for his club, especially in the relegation battle. So Tottenham have to be on their toes. They can't sit back. And, and Mourinho, um, Mourinho's got to come up with a different game plan to get Tottenham right and get them back on track in the coming days. All right, let's get into Liverpool now because uh, there is there's so much to talk about right now with this side. It starts with the injuries. It, to be fair, they've they've gone through a, a ton of injuries. They've lost their best players. Um, I talked about it earlier in the podcast uh, when I was getting into the transfers, but no Van Dyke, no Joe Gomez, even Diego Jato, who's their star signing over the sum, over the summer, uh, he's out now. He'll, he'll probably come back soon, but uh, you know Trent has missed time. Uh, Allison has even missed matches here and there. He's such an integral part of their squad. It's just every week there's a new addition to the Liverpool injury list, and it's crushing them, especially terms in, in terms of fitness. Um, but getting, you know, looking at these last two matches, um, if I had told you that 
Burnley and Brighton would beat Liverpool at Anfield in back-to-back matches, I would have called you crazy because prior to this, Liverpool had gone 1,369 days without losing at home. 1,369. I mean, that, you know, that's, it was almost almost four years worth uh, of a home-winning streak. And now they get that streak snapped, two losses in the past week and a half by not Man City and Man United, Burnley and Brighton. It's funny if you if you think about it in a way, if you want to be cynical like that uh, as a fan of a different club. But, you know, this is the this could be the downfall of Liverpool. I'm not going to rule Jurgen Klopp out of anything. But, uh, you know, aside from from the injuries, uh, the, the biggest problem with them right now has been their poor attacking play. And while they do have the second most goals in the league with 43, that's down from 50 that they had last year through 21 matches. They, uh, their, their front three, Firmino, Salah, Mane, it's still one of the best in the league, but they haven't produced uh, the, the way we're used to. Salah went on that goalless streak for a while and just snapped it a couple matches ago, but they, they look, they've they looked flat um, in, in two out of the last three against Burnley and Brighton. Those are two teams that they shouldn't be losing to. I'm not going to insult Burnley and Brighton because they do deserve credit. Their their uh, their defense has played spectacular in, in the past stretch of matches. They deserve to beat Liverpool, that's for sure. Especially Burnley, who came out firing on all cylinders, didn't hold back, um, and got a huge win for for their effort to stay out of the relegation zone. But uh, the, the poor attacking play to me is inexcusable. Uh, there's no reason for it, really. There's no excuse. Uh, even Jurgen Klopp, and I'm going to read this quote here that he gave after uh, the Man United draw. Um, he said, quote, There's no easy explanation. We have always missed chances, but we would just have another one, which we used, which we used, and that's how it is. Um, and that's, you know, that, that kind of sums it up. Even Jurgen Klopp doesn't know what's going on right now. I think he's kind of alluding to the fact that they're not generating enough chances, and normally when they do generate a lot of chances, at some point uh, that spectacular front three will finish them. The midfield has, has struggled as well, even the back line, who, who we've... Uh, who we've grown accustomed to being so consistent, hasn't played well. It, it's through all three levels of this squad um, and getting back. I mean, a, a lot of it does have to do with depth. I just I, I can't ignore that fact because it is true. Uh, you don't like to make injury excuses for a squad because every every team goes through injuries. But with Liverpool, they've been hit especially hard. There's no denying that. Virgil van Dijk is so important to that squad. And, and you can just see, um, even in their wins, his absence is felt. Listen, there's there's one way that they can back, get back into this season and and get back to their championship form. I mean, that's by beating Man City on Sunday. Uh, I mean, for Liverpool, it's it's a must win. They're certainly more desperate right now than Man City. They sit uh, seven points behind uh, City right now, and they could really use a huge victory on the road. But I mean, let's let's be, let's be clear. It's not going to be easy. Man City have one of the best winning streaks in a long time. They've won, I believe, it's nine straight Premier League matches. Uh, I might be mistaken on that, but it's it's one hell of a winning streak. It's crazy that you know two months ago we were talking about Man City being a flop. Pep Guardiola could be moving on to Barcelona. This, that, whatever. No, Man City are Man City, and we know uh, their level of play is unparalleled. 
when they've got all cylinders going. And right now that's the case. Uh, it's going to take an, a, an immense effort, immense amount of effort from Liverpool to beat City on Sunday. I honestly think there's going to be a little bit of extra motivation from City to kind of deliver the, uh, not the final blow, but a huge blow to Liverpool's title chances after Liverpool outmatched them last season. Um, I think Pep is going to, to get his squad ex- a little bit of extra motivation uh, for this matchup. And I know, you know, whenever whenever players are asked about that, if they have bulletin board or t- material or they want, they're a little bit extra moti- motivated for a certain game because of their opponent. They always deny it. But in this case, I've got to think at home uh, against a struggling Liverpool side, Man City will want to deliver that final blow, which just which makes it that much tougher for Liverpool. I'm really intrigued by this matchup because I think it's the first time in a while where we've seen Liverpool in a desperate position to win. Uh, you know, not the first time under Jurgen Klopp, but this is certainly uh, one of their worst stretches of form under you know one of the greatest managers in the game. Klopp, of course, is always going to be ready tactically. He's always going to have a great game plan in place, but once those players hit the pitch, in a lot of ways they're alone, especially with no fans. They're not going to have any um, anyone cheering or booing. Or We, we know how much uh, the fans impact the, the actual play on the pitch in the Premier League, um, and they won't have that. So they're kind of isolated, and um, again, this is the first time that they've faced serious adversity, and they're going to have to step up and respond. We'll have to see how Salah and, and Henderson and some of the uh, the older, the veteran players take charge in that one. I'm going to make a prediction here. I'm going to go 2-1 City. I just think right now they're in such a groove and Liverpool aren't going to be able to do enough and they're going to drop points again and uh, possibly fall out of the title race. They'd be 10 points behind Man City. That's hard to come back from, uh, especially when when Man City are playing so well. No matter what happens, though, I'm really just hoping for some quality football. The first Man City-Liverpool matchup wasn't great. It finished 1-1 with not a whole lot of, uh, of excitement there. But yeah, just, just hoping for goals, hoping for a great matchup. But I do think City will get the upper hand and further their lead at the top. As I like to do at the end of every episode, I'm going to quickly go around the league and talk about some of the smaller stories from the past week. Starting with West Ham, they get a huge 3-1 victory over Aston Villa. It firmly secures them in that uh, fifth place spot for now. They have Chelsea on their heels, but right now West Ham are playing really well. And who would have thought that Jesse Lingard would be the uh, the the engine for West Ham's attack in their last match? He had pretty much been out of the Man United squad forever. Gets a gets a loan deal to West Ham for the rest of the season, and just looks like a completely different player. Looks like himself from a couple years ago where he's doing everything on the pitch, he's tracking back, he's scoring goals, got two of them in his debut for the Hammers, and that's huge because they could really use another spark on offense. Um, the, the West Ham are, are a really good side. I think they, they have a real shot this season to get into a European place. And they're only two points behind Liverpool uh, uh, in, in fourth, and who knows if Liverpool do lose this weekend. West Ham at Fulham, that should be... Uh, a tight match, probably a win, in which case they would go into the top four. What a great season they're having right now under David Moyes. After a nice little surge up the table for Arsenal, they've kind of dropped back 
over the past week. They drew against Man United 0-0 on Saturday, and then on Tuesday lost to Wolves 2-1. There was a controversial red card in that game to David Luiz. Um, it looked like Luiz was chasing a Wolves attacking player um, and tripped him, and that was worthy of a penalty and a red card on further review. It looked like Luiz... It was incidental contact, shouldn't have been a penalty um, or red, but it nonetheless cost Arsenal uh, one of their better defenders, and they went on to lose the game. Jean Moutinho scored a 49th minute winner uh, to to provide Wolves a big three points. Uh, I said in the last episode that I thought Wolves might may be one of those teams that by the end of the season we'll be talking about in that relegation battle if Fulham or West Brom could make up any steam so far. Uh, they've they've uh, they've done the exact opposite. They've improved. It looks like they get a big win against Arsenal, um, and continue on their path to getting inside the uh, the the top ten. Uh, it's going to be a tough test, but uh, Wolves have the potential to turn things around. It's still unknown if their best player Raúl Jiménez will be back from a head injury this season. But they they are they need to score goals. Um, I talked about that too on the last episode, and they've putting up two against Arsenal is a good sign. Or the the Gunners have had one of their better defenses um, over this last uh, about month, um, and Wolves were able to break through and put two goals up on the board. Finally, Leicester got a two nil victory over Fulham on Wednesday to get uh, the, themselves back on track in the top four. They lost to Leeds three one on Sunday in a surprising match where their defense was simply uh, simply overpowered by the Leeds attack. But they they fixed, figured them, some things out. Brendan Rodgers changed up the system a little, changed up the lineup. And because of that, it looked like they were much stronger on attack. And they also kept a clean sheet for the first time in a couple weeks. So Leicester, keep pace with Man United in second place. They're, that uh, top three is grouped closely together. Just five points separating Leicester and first place Man City. It's going to be one hell of a finish to the season for sure. As a parting note, I encourage you all to listen to Michael Kirsting's podcast, The Pitch, uh, also on WMUC Sports. I made a guest appearance on there to talk some uh, talk about Thomas Tuchel and Chelsea and get into uh, the uh, the reasons why I think I'm optimistic about Chelsea's chances in the Premier League under a new manager. That's going to do it for this episode of The Upper 90. You can follow me on Twitter at Culp underscore Sam. You can also follow WMUC Sports at WMUC Sports. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll talk to you next week.